I don't like rhyming girl and world. I feel like that happens all the time, and it just seems so damn lazy to me. Like, girl and world. All the time. Like, stop it. Just come up with a better fucking line. What's up, everyone? Welcome to 1001 Album Complaints, the show where experienced musicians and lifelong friends get together and do a deep dive off a randomly selected album from the list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. Each week, we we pick an album at random. This week, we're listening to Either Or by Elliot Smith. Um, if you haven't heard this album before, there's actually a good chance you've heard a few of the songs before if you've watched the Goodwill Hunting soundtrack. But even if you haven't, you know, we'll cover all the bases and give you a kind of a feel for what the sounds like today. And then we'll actually vote on whether you actually need to hear this before you die. With us today, we've got our usual cast of characters for the most part. I would like to uh, kind of introduce, have us introduce ourselves with a kind of Cliff Notes review of, of this album. Um, what'd you think, Phil? I think Either Or has a uh, classic home recording sound. Okay. What about you, Tom? Eh. That's my review. Eh. Wow, this is, this is going to be a good one. Okay. <laughs> What about you, Rob? Yeah, my review is guy walks into a studio with an acoustic guitar and then works pretty hard, perhaps too hard, to make it sound intimate and like a home recording. Interesting. Okay. So uh, my my Cliff Notes version would be like like Leo Fender with the Telecaster. I think Elliot Smith perfected the sad bastard genre and nobody's really done it better since then. Um, and by the way, the sad bastard music, I don't know if <laughs> who else familiar with that term. I found out that term from uh, the movie High Fidelity, where, you know, somebody's listening to Bell and Sebastian in the record store and Jack Black's character is like complaining about listening to sad bastard music. And I always thought that was a funny term, which I do think kind of encapsulates this. But I, I also think that um, it, in many ways, like a lot of people ascribe Elliot Smith as being like a pioneer of this genre um, certainly not the first to do it but i think if you look at like the bonnie vares and the uh, iron and wines and bright eyes of the world i think most of them are sort of taking from from his kind of musical stylings if you will so a little bit about kind of elliot smith um at least my experience with this record so i uh actually found out like, like a lot of people found out about this through the goodwill hunting soundtrack but I also think it's worth mentioning, you know, we don't have to get too into this, but, you know, if he's well known for the Goodwill Hunting soundtrack, I think he may be equally known for the, the manner of his death, which, uh, you know, he died in 2003, I think at the age of 34, kind of a gruesome, you know, death. And I remember it being like pretty big news when it happened. Um, and it's sort of started evoking comparisons to, to that guy, Nick Drake who who um who either killed himself or OD'd but had a very similar kind of whispery uh sad bastard kind of thing going on so I, he kind of evoked a lot of uh comparisons to him and and his death is actually still somewhat shrouded in controversy um he had two he was found with by his girlfriend with two stab wounds in his chest 
Um, and at the time, though, he he had been on huge amounts of drugs, was very depressed, but he was starting to actually clean himself up at that point. And he didn't have any like what they call hesitation wounds. I think what you're referring to there with the hesitation wounds is not that that is that is a mark that it was self-inflicted if there are hesitation wounds. But there's another way to read that, which is like you weren't fully committed to it. And, you know, for a guy who at one point threatened to kill himself if he wasn't let out of his recording contract, um, it seems probably the most likely that he did kill himself. But he also went into it like all the way. He stabbed himself twice in the chest if he did. And to do that twice, you got to be really committed to that. I think I think so. I watched the documentary about him that's on Amazon Prime and they mentioned in that documentary that the coroner never officially ruled it a suicide or a homicide. So that's maybe where some of the mystery comes in. But certainly in terms of his friends, it seems like they definitely think that he took his own life because, you know, they were worried about him for a variety of reasons. And, you know, they were careful to to basically say, hey, don't, don't pigeonhole him as just being a depressed songwriter. It's not, you know, there was more to him, but he was clearly going through something around that time. Although I thought another aspect of that mystery was that, correct me if I'm wrong, because this could just be apocryphal, that there was some kind of note where his first name was misspelled. Is that true? You know, it wasn't that his name was misspelled on the coroner's report. Yeah. Um, they, on the coroner's report, they misspelled his name, but there was a note that basically said it was like a post-it note, I think that said like, I'm sorry. So one other thing that's just almost just like a public service announcement. Like he was fighting with his girlfriend. She apparently went into the bathroom. She hears him scream or whatever comes out and she finds him with a stab wound and a knife in his chest. She then pulls the knife out of his chest, which you don't do that. That is how you bleed to death. Like, the knife is actually stopping a lot of the bleeding at that time. You don't move a person with a knife stuck in them, but you don't pull the knife out because that's that's going to cause a lot more bleeding. Not that I'm saying that she caused his death. Clearly, it's a, you know, it's a fraught situation. But, uh, you know, it seems kind of odd that there could be another person in the house and somebody randomly breaks in and stabs him. And there also just happens to be a note that says that he's super sorry. Like, if anybody, if anything, his girlfriend killed him, right? Like, that seems to be the only other one that could have been. Maybe we should have put the disclaimer at the beginning of the episode. (laughs) Know what the fuck we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that's fair. And, you know, I don't want to, like, perpetuate any kind of weird, like, internet rumors. But I think when people generally think about him and his music and his life... I think they think of Goodwill Hunting, and then I think they think of the the way he died, which has, there's still some question around. In, in terms of musically, though, a lot of people I think are surprised to to learn that he, his music before he started doing a solo thing was was a lot edgier and and harder with, with especially with this band called Heat Miser that was kind of doing like a post grunge. You know, Portland's a couple hours away from Seattle, so there was still that kind of grunge aesthetic. So that's kind of how he you know, started his musical journey, at least, uh, you know, writing songs and, and things like that. He did come up from a pretty musical household, you know, played piano, all that stuff, had music in the house, you know, so he, he becomes this like star in Portland comes out with either or, which was actually his third album, which funny enough, his first two albums, if you listen to them, they're much more morose. So like, if you think that either or sounds, 
you know, sad and, and, and depressing. His first two albums were, were much more so. I don't think either or reads as all that depressed. I mean, the production of it, the approach to songwriting and production and arrangement is very understated and lo-fi, and thus it feels sort of sad in that sense. But, and, and he definitely has some sad lyrics in there. But maybe it's, maybe it's the sands of time washing over me. It just doesn't strike me as all that dark. Yeah, I definitely agree. I definitely knew this record well at a you know a different time in my life and when i turned it back on it was very familiar i heard what i expected all like the double tracked vocals and guitars and a lot of stuff like hard panned for that that sort of effect right but i i did sort of expect it to be sadder than i remembered it as 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 sadder so i i'd never listened to elliot smith before um I had a period of time where I, I remember like, oh, either or it's an album that has gotten some acclaim. I remember there was a time maybe f- 10 years ago where I was like, oh, I'll check this album out. And I listened to it and I was like, I don't like this. And I moved on. And when I came back to it, I was actually hoping that it was going to be more sad. I was hoping it was going to have a little bit more of that kind of, um, you know, wallowing in depression aspect of it because it, that would have given me more than I got from it now. Um, and, you know, we want to, I don't know if we want to jump into like general impressions of the album or if we want to play something first, but like I, I, this, it sort of just rolled off my back for a lot of it, honestly. I will say like my general impressions, I spent a lot of time with this album specifically, you know, back in, you know, 2003, I remember specifically when I lived in the Northwest, just being, I guess, closer to where he was from, ended up listening to a lot. I feel like the album always reminded me of Rain. So like, you know, maybe that's where I was kind of picking up the the sad vibes and, and really more his his voice. I think there's he has a manner of singing that he sounds really just beaten down almost. And so um, but I do think he as far as like instrumentation and the way he writes some of his songs what he put together, like I almost feel like he's a bit of a unicorn in the sense where I think he's a really great singer, a great songwriter and a great guitar player. And I think he kind of like flexes those different things at different times. And he also, I think it's worth mentioning. He was very much a like musician's musician. You know, if, if you hear a lot of like professional musicians you know, people that we love and listen to, kind of describe his influence on them. There is a reverence. I think that a lot of people have for how, uh, for how kind of unique he was and, and what he kind of brought. Um, but yeah, curious, uh, any other kind of general impressions of the, of the record? I think when you talk about other musicians liking him, so I, I have a history with this record as well. It was introduced to me in college, you know, pretty standard story and listen to it back then a bit yeah i like it just fine i think when you talk about it being a musicians he's a, other musicians are fans of his part of that is this idea that he has a distinctive sound i think that's kind of undeniable he he found a sound for himself for his voice for his guitar for his style and he leaned into it consistently throughout this record and reasonably consistently throughout the other records that I've sampled. I'm not as intimately familiar with the other records in his catalog. But I gotta admit, my on revisiting this, one of the things I was thinking was, I'd feel differently about this if it were a debut record. 
Alan, you mentioned Bonnie Vare and a handful of other sort of descendants of this kind of music. I think it's a fair assessment to say that Elliot Smith was at the beginning of something. And part of it was this post-grunge hangover where now we can talk about our feelings and kind of be quiet again. And it became hip to be quiet once more. And I think that leads, I see a line between records like this and The Shins and Flaming Lips and, you know, a bunch of other bands. Iron and Wine. Definitely Iron and Wine, yeah. However, the fact that he's kind of this far along in his career and still, he has some great songs on here, no doubt about it. I think some of these songs are definitely worth listening to, but I was a little underwhelmed because there wasn't that much variety. There wasn't that much, it just, it didn't feel like it had a ton to hold on to for me upon re-listening. Yeah, I got bored with this album. Um, and part of it was the lack of, of variety, certainly. Um, and like, listen, it's a very subtle album and there can be a lot of beauty and subtlety. Um, and I certainly like a lot of subtle music for some reason. And again, this is me coming in with like almost no preconceptions at all. I did not find this to come off as sincere. Uh, it seemed to lack sincerity and I don't know why it didn't come off as sincere to me. Um, I, I feel like this is the type of music where it works very well when you are talking about another person that you have some intimate connection with. It works less well if you're talking about yourself, and it works, works even worse if you're talking about um, two people to whom you seem, or like a person to whom you seem to have no connection. But if you're talking about it, it's like kind of intimate sort of love song type of stuff. It doesn't have to be a love song, but like talking about the intricacies, intricacies and subtleties of a relationship or something. I think that works and it works a couple of times on this album, but there are other songs that seem like he's, it's almost like slice of boring ass life stuff. And I they just didn't do anything for me there. Hmm. Interesting. One thing I kept thinking when I re-listened to this was it felt like the predictable chord never came. So he, you know, he might play a few chords and then your brain was expecting a chord to happen that you might hear in traditional music or that might seem like the most obvious change. And it went to something else, but that it still worked. I, I mean, I definitely agree with that. I think there are some, I think there are some tunes on the record. The one that I'm immediately thinking of is uh, like track five, Pictures of Me, that sort of has like, it has that sort of like kinks, the Beatles. Like it's, it also has like that sort of up-tempo thing. But yeah, I know, I know what you mean about it. Like it's very cheerful. Maybe it even feels like it's all major chords, but sometimes that actually is a very bold change. Well, Alan, one thing I would say is that I, I agree that there is a lot of value in sometimes not doing the obvious. Sometimes the obvious is great because it's the thing that obviously works and like, but there, you know, I think that um, they've even said that they, they've shown that the thing that um, makes music be a hit is there's something unexpected in it. Like that's what makes people like be, catch on to it. But I think that that works in contrast. And there were a lot of songs where you're right. That's like the thing that you thought was going to happen never happened. Um, but if it never happens, then all of a sudden that begins to be the thing that you think is going to happen. He's going to do the non-obvious chord. Like sometimes I just want you to like, it works well when you're, when you're doing some stuff and you're like, here's the obvious progression. Here's the obvious progression. Here's the, here's the change that throws you off. 
gets a little tension in there and then you get back to something that feels a little bit more familiar. I didn't feel a whole lot of settling back into something that felt good and familiar in not all the songs, but in, in some of the songs. Yeah. It's funny you guys are saying this because I think on reflection, I think some of the appeal of this, especially in college, was a little bit of the sense of, oh, I could, I could kind of do this. Like, this sounds like a normal person in the studio. And this is a record I could make. You know, there's something about the universality of certain recordings, and I'm cognizant of the fact that last week we talked about Violent Femmes, and I lauded that to the heavens, because that has some of that vibe to it, too. But the accessibility, musically, singing-wise, all those things, to me, is part of its charm. Well, this was definitely a... You know, he had help. I think he he had like production help. So I don't think it was like 100% DIY, but it was all recorded kind of in the same place in Portland. He plays all the instruments. I think only half the songs probably even have more than just an acoustic guitar. Um, so anytime there's bass, he's playing it, drums. He double tracks his vocals, Phil. So he does he does play all the instruments on the record? That's my understanding. Yeah, yeah, because I would always wondered about him. I'd always like the, the legend, the lore I had of Elliot Smith in my mind was... Uh, him alone in like a one bedroom apartment in Los Angeles recording all these songs by himself. All right. So let's get into some of the songs here. Cause I think um, it'll help flesh out the, uh, the experience here. Let's take a listen to uh, between the bars. General thoughts about this song. I think it's a great example. This is his most played song on Spotify, his most well-known song, and I think it is highly appropriate. So nice. Sometimes you have these artists that where their most well-known song is not their best song. To me, this song gave me chills listening to it. I like this song. I kind of have a personal connection to it as well, familiar in my life. And I feel like this is what he was aiming for every time, but was not able to achieve every time. I could see that being the case. This this also, if I had started listening to this and I just listened to the playlist that Alan, that Alan put out, like I might have had a different impression, but I, you know, listened to the album all the way through a couple of times. This is a standout song. This song is great. It's it starts off and I was like, "Oh, he's covering Rocky Raccoon. That's cool." Um and then uh <laughs> but it really works really well. Again, I think that it is there's there's a couple of things that are really, really nice about this song. Um, and I think that it kind of is a hallmark for a lot of the stuff that he does on the album. There is that subtle guitar work that's reinforcing the melody in the background. Um, and that works really well over the verses. And then it diverges from the melody in the chorus. And that also gives what could have been a song with not a lot of depth, a lot more depth of sort of um, the space. And then like, that F to the F minor at the end of the chorus is awesome. 
that F minor kind of doesn't belong there, but it's great. Great change. Yeah. That's a fill tactic. I feel like I feel like that shows up in a lot of mega songs, the the, the major to the minor chord, and it works though. Yeah. yeah, it's a nice it's a nice trick that nobody sees coming. It's really easy to execute. And then ending it on that too. Like having the song end on that, you're just like, oh yeah, it it leads you into the next song, which I think is Pictures of You, right? Is that the next song after that on the album? Uh, that would make sense. Yeah, yeah, it's track five. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, and it leads well into that. We're kind of like, oh yeah, that's good. And again, it's a, it's this is a song about other people. It's about somebody else. So it seems like it's somebody has an intimate relationship with. And I'm like, okay, that that whispered confessional style works really well for that. You you mentioned the way that like the chords and the melody sort of like play against each other, and I do think it's really particularly beautiful in this song. The way the guitar sort of has sort of like a like a dissonant like bass line essentially that's sort of moving around and uh, yeah and it's sort of dissonant when the, when the voice isn't and there's certain dissonance in the melody when the guitar is more stable and it's just really well written in that way and I think this also highlights this this sort of recording aesthetic too right where this vocal is double tracked or something and at hard pan so it's like it's a sort of surreal effect but also a very lo-fi effect like it doesn't sound effecty um it's just a really sort of natural echo well yeah it's like that um what's that my morning jacket guy who just like slathers every one of his vocals and that like hard um like super big reverb sound that sounds super affected um yeah this this is not it doesn't sound but also doesn't sound natural yeah i i also think this is some of the best writing on the album even from the title this you know he uses a lot of metaphors in his writing and this is these are the ones that kind of landed with me the between the bars metaphor you know about feeling i don't know someone's in prison someone's in a jail cell or trapped or something that potentially you'll never see the promises you only make the images stuck in your head it it felt kind of visceral and real i know he had a troubled childhood that's why he left texas he had a really bad relationship with his stepdad that it seemed like he never wanted to talk about don't know what exactly was going on there but he moved out and went to Portland in like ninth grade or something, like pretty early on. And I always kind of assumed he was, you know, talking about himself here in a in a confessional way. And that made it just hit a little harder. Yeah, I agree with all that. This this is an awesome song. And um this was obviously one of the songs that shows up in, in Goodwill Hunting, and I think it's hard for me to like disassociate from from that scene. Um, but I think it works really well. It's funny that this song, Rob, you mentioned this being like probably his most popular song, which I think is true in terms of like, you know, plays and, and references and things. What's funny about this song, too, is um, Madonna was once asked if, you know, what what's a song that you wish you had written, you know, that but that someone else writ, wrote. And she referenced this song and she's actually done a cover version of this, as have many other artists. Huh. Seems to be something that like a, a lot of other artists kind of latch onto. Um, but I think it was these, th- this was also was the era. So like the way he got kind of hooked up with, with goodwill hunting was, um, af- right after he had produced this album and Gus Van Zandt, who uh, I guess was the director of the movie or the producer or something. Um, apparently he lived in Portland as well and s- tangentially knew Elliot Smith or at least knew of him through like the Portland scene and was like, Hey, the, this music would be perfect for the, for this album. And I think he was a little bit reluctant at first, 
which it seems like he was really reluctant to do a lot of shit, frankly. Um, one of the songs that's not on this album, but um, that song Miss Misery, which is probably another song that he's most well known for. He actually he wrote specifically for the movie and apparently no, he he was nominated for an Oscar and he like performed at the Academy Awards in this like do you ever guys have you guys seen that video? He's performing by himself yeah. in this white suit with his dirty hair and he looks really uncomfortable and really wanted nothing to do with, with any of that, even though this was sort of right as his career was like starting to take off. Rob, I watched that documentary too. And I remember a quote where he, he says, I love songwriting. and I love recording. I hate playing live, but I'll play live. If that means I can do this other shit. Yeah. I think it's also worth mentioning too. Now for younger folks, maybe looking at this movie, goodwill hunting, right? But this was, a huge hit movie with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck both in the film and as screenwriters. And they ended up winning the Oscar for screenwriting, right? But just looking back, context, they were brand new on the scene. They hadn't been, I don't know if in any movies or they were not, they were not stars at all. They were definitely unknowns as writers. And so I have to imagine that everything about this movie felt like a little bit of the studio taking a chance. and. So working with Elliot Smith on the soundtrack must have felt like a continuation of that. Let's go as indie as possible. Let's let's try to do something really original here. Well, also, I don't believe that Robin Williams had done anything successful that was um, uh, dramatic acting before then. I think that everything that he had done before then was either unsuccessful or not dramatic. <laughs> he had been in he was in uh, Dead Poet Society, right? Are you saying Mrs. Doubtfire isn't dramatic? A dramatic <laughs> film? Yeah, you know what? You're right. Dead Poet Society is is yes. You know what? I'll I'll also say confessional time. I've never seen Dead Poet Society. <laughs> Fil- filmed in Delaware. I know. Filmed at Archmere, right? Uh, I think it was down south somewhere. It was St. Andrews Boarding School. Oh, uh, St. Andrews. Okay, whatever. See, I don't know anything about it. I- I'm just saying you could look back on Goodwill Hunting now, like on IMDb, and think that it was this blockbuster obvious blockbuster because it has Matt Damon and Ben Affleck and they're behind the camera. They were brand new to the world. This was their announcement on screen. So I'm just, I'm just putting that out there. You know, another thing that I will say is that, um, I don't know why anybody would want to go see Elliot Smith live. This does not seem like live music music to me. Um, I I wouldn't be comfortable (laughs) in a club listening to this music. It just wouldn't, it's not the appropriate venue. I have an anecdote for that, actually. I didn't see Elliot Smith live, but I did see Iron and Wine live one time at Great American Music Hall in San Francisco, and I fell asleep during the set. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, reflecting upon that later, I was like, I'm not sure if that was a compliment. Like, he sung me to sleep, like a lullaby, or, or what was going on there. But, I, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I've heard that story from you, Rob, and it definitely talked me out of seeing Iron and Wine, even in a sit-down scenario. <laughs> Although I don't know why you'd stand up for two hours. Yeah, right. Just taking one ticket sale away from him at a time. That is funny though, the the that concept of like the one person and a guitar. Cause I also took this was the way back in the day, I took Courtney for her birthday to see Ani DeFranco at the Beacon Theater in New York. And for me it was this huge like thing that I've been planning and I, you know, I had like a hundred bucks in my pocket and was like crossing my fingers that I wasn't going to run out of money at some point that night. But anyway, long story short, I had heard Ani DeFranco before, but I had heard her with the, like this souped up jazz band. And so I was ready for like, 
you know, pretty kicking show. And then she rolls out in just an acoustic guitar and plays for like 45 minutes. And like, we were both kind of underwhelmed, but didn't want to admit that because, you know, we were there for, you know, for a special day. And uh, yeah, but I think there, it takes, it takes balls to get up there and just play by yourself with an acoustic guitar. And in fact, I think when Elliot Smith started doing this, he was still in heat miser and the other guys in the band were like, like, what, what are you doing? Like, why are you playing these like sad, depressing songs by yourself? And that wasn't something that people were really doing at that time. Like the, it's like, I live in fucking Portland. Why do you think I'm depressed? Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is really early Portland hipster, right? We're talking early to mid nineties. You know, we, how did Portland get the reputation it has now? This is the tip of the era for sure. Definitely. And that even even that story there about Heat Miser, his bandmates, Alan, reminds me of, you know, Paul McCartney went through that with the Beatles when he wanted to do Yesterday. They were like, wait a minute, we've been doing She Loves You and I Want to Hold Your Hand. This is a little off base for us. It's just you up there with a, with a guitar or a piano or whatever. Like, yeah. By the way, there is a bit of a nod to Elliot Smith probably just being a pretty, pretty funny dude because Heat Miser is pretty funny. Uh, are you guys familiar with the Heat Miser character from, uh, it's like one of those claymation movies. No. Let's see what it's called. It's called, uh, it's called A Year Without Santa Claus. No. Heat Miser is a hilarious, hilarious animated character from 70s claymation. They call me Heat Miser. How do you know that? <laughs> you've you've seen you've seen this. Uh, it's like part of like the Rudolph and uh, oh the California snowman claymation guys. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like proto that. Okay. Yeah. Well, whatever. Anyway, Heat Miser is really funny. Okay. <laughs> I'll take your word nice. for it. So let, let's talk about another song that I think is a certainly a contrast from. Between the bars, uh, but the song Rose Parade. Let's let's give that a quick spin. I included this because I thought it was a little different than the rest of the the tracks in that it's more upbeat. I felt like it is a little more kind of optimistic, but anyway, what would you, would you guys think of this tune? Dude, this is the song that I was like, you're writing about a day that even you are basically saying was kind of a boring day. It's a boring song. <laughs> <laughs> like it's, it's a boring song. It, the hook's not that good. Um, it lacks the beauty to propel it into being a good song. Um, 
But yeah, it's just like you're writing a song about a day that you're just kind of like walking around the city and nothing really happens. And it's it bored the hell out of me. I, I had a visceral reaction to this song. I disliked it greatly. You could argue this song's just kind of inoffensive to me, not really a standout, good or bad, personally. But this, you could argue the whole record production is kind of like this. But it gave me the most Jeff Lynne, Full Moon Fever production Ooh. elements to it, where he's just like stacking acoustic guitars on top of each other, as in Free Falling, the Tom Petty hit. There's just so much acoustic guitar strumming, strumming, strumming. Well, it, do, it does sound like a 12 string, but you can tell it's not. But then also you're never quite sure. But the story about Jeff Lynne with Tom Petty in the in the studio, Jeff Lynne of ELO, was just like for free falling. He was just like more more guitars playing just the free falling riff. Like there's <laughs> apparently there's like nine guitars on there. Yeah, the, the, the guitar work didn't carry this through for me. <laughs> Well, you know, I'll, can I loop back and reference a different song? Because as Tom mentioned, I do think that if you distill the record down as you did with the focus list, the songs we're talking about, I do think it reads a little better. I, I do, my, my biggest problem with the record was not that it wasn't good. It was that it just got a little boring by the end of it. And another problem I had with the record that I was surprised by, because I actually was coming back into it thinking I was going to love it, was the track ordering and putting speed trials first. I do not, he can't hit those notes or hold those notes. So I'm not really sure why they put that as the first track in the first single. I think that was a really odd choice. I think I know exactly what you're talking about. It's almost like there's a, a whimper. He's not quite going for it in the way that like Sting might really reach for the top. He's pretty far away from Sting territory. I would agree. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. That's like meant to be a, a contrast. I'm just saying that sh- that then shaped a lot of my thinking about about the material that he wouldn't 100% commit. And there are these flashes of brilliance throughout the album, like Between the Bars, and I have one other standout song that we're going to talk about. But the rest of it was a little meh. Like, if it was, if it was a debut, again, I'd feel differently about it. Because, like, well, here's someone coming out of the box with a really clear idea of who they are, what they should sound like consistently throughout this record. I'd be kind of a little more impressed. And so that's, that sort of colored my thinking. You do make an interesting point about speed trials, and that's sort of like some of that that like whisper chorus, right? Although the the whisper, like the the whispered sad bastard vibe, is something we're also we're agreeing that I don't want to say he uh, pioneered, but you know this is definitely early on in in sad bastard whispering. Listen, if songs. you're gonna if you're gonna whisper though, you gotta hit the damn notes. Like I can forgive I you for going off high. We talked before, like Jeff Magnum can't hit some of those notes. Great. You're belting and you can't quite get to the top of a note. Okay. You're whispering, eh, you gotta hit the damn note. Or just write a different melody with a different note in it. Uh, you know, drop it a whole step, something like that. But it's it I, I agree, Rob. Coming out of the gate, that colored my impression of 
his vocal abilities, which for some reason made me much less forgiving than maybe I would have been if I if I the first thing I listened to was uh, you know between the bars. Since since we love talking about female artists' uh, appearances, can we talk about Elliot Smith's appearance for a moment? Because I noticed there were a lot of pictures of him where he's got kind of long, dirty, greasy hair, and he's wearing a beanie, and he's not the handsomest guy necessarily. And he looks when he's wearing that beanie with the long, greasy hair, he looks like Jimbo Jones from The Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Dude, that's spot on. That is absolutely spot on. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny because I was I was reading um in his Wikipedia article, they're talking about how like there were a couple of performances where people like saw him and they were like, Oh man, like he looks real bad. I'm worried about his drug use. And like they're describing that he had like, you know, greasy, unkempt hair and a scraggly beard. And I'm like, that's fucking how he looks, right? Like I haven't seen pictures of him looking otherwise. It's not like I'd be like, oh man, it's usually a three piece suit and, a, and you know, like a $25 haircut going on with some pomade. But no, now you. I can see he, he seems <laughs> to be clean shaven. I see how if you add a scraggly beard, you know? He's got a little Mickey Rourke. Like he kind of looks like he's been in a couple fights kind of thing. But I, but I will I will say this, you know, he's very hearing him in interviews, he's extremely soft spoken. Like his speaking voice sounds like his singing voice, which is a little bit jarring. And and I love talking about the cover. I don't think this is a great album cover. It's just sort of him smoking a cigarette in front of a mirror kind of thing. But it is the dissonance from looking at the cover. He looks like a a hard hard life hard knock kind of guy. To what is on the record is a little. There's a big distance there. He looks like he's like, if you were to come up to him and be like, oh, do you play? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I do play. Like, what do you play? Oh, I play guitar. Like, oh, what's the name of your band? He'd be like, oh, like Panther Blood or something. Like, he looks like the kind of guy that'd be in like a metal band called Panther Blood as opposed to like, no, I'm just a, a singer songwriter. I go out by my own name and I whisper about how I'm sad. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the timeline and like, I wonder. I wonder the degree to which two just Nirvana unplugged created a, a, a demand for this, this sort of just like this style of sort of like post grunge, you know, alt acoustic, you know, like this, this sort of fits the Nirvana unplugged bill or, or sort of, you know, it, it, it fits that profile pretty well. Sure. Yeah. Just like hipsters wearing cardigans and playing softly. I can see that. Yeah, from the Pacific Northwest, like still trying to like ride the grunge thing. You know, I mean, you know, I'm just saying singer songwriters tend to make it big or not on the back of like the scene they're a part of. And, you know, and they often obviously are sort of writing from the same style, the same time, the same experiences. One of the things that jumped out to me, a quote that I heard from him in an interview that just made me. I think his story is definitely a sad story, a tragedy. So I do feel bad even, you know, talking shit at all. But he said something to the effect of, I'm the wrong kind of person to be big and famous. I think he's a great example of someone who really didn't necessarily want to be on this roller coaster at all. And then was totally strapped into it. And it, it was the undoing of them. Which, and that is sad. I don't want to be like, uh, you know, diagnosing from afar but it does sound like he had mental health problems beyond depression. Like there's the story about how when he was recording 
Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of which album it was, but he was convinced that he was being followed by a white van, and he would insist on being dropped off like like a mile plus from the studio when he'd like hike to it through like the backwoods way to get there because he was like being followed like if you have that level of paranoia and then all of a sudden everybody's recognizing you on the streets and they're like hey elliot you're like i'm being followed all the time that's gotta be torture that sounds horrible that was around the point where he was so i found this like really hard to believe but there was a point where he was doing up to he was spending up to fifteen hundred dollars a day on heroin and crack, which I mean, if you already have any kind of like issues with paranoia or mental illness, you know, that, that is going to destroy you. And yeah, you're exactly right. Like he, he didn't want, you know, I think some guys come off as like, Oh, I don't want the attention, but maybe they really do. I really think he was, it was totally accurate in saying, I like this. I like the process. I like, writing music, but I don't like what the industry does. Um, and you know, there were stories about during that time, during that like period of intense, like paranoia where he wasn't even able to show up to the recording studio. He was, he was flaking out. He, I think he had some other songs that were, you know, set to be in, in soundtracks that he just couldn't finish on time. He was totally flaking out. I mean, it's pretty common, you know, story of like the musician who goes off the rails, but, um, yeah, he, he definitely he definitely went off the rails. How in the hell do you smoke fifteen hundred dollars worth of crack and heroin a day? I don't even like. Are you paying premium prices for that? Because like crack's cheap. That's its whole thing, right? And heroin's also <laughs> pretty cheap. That's kind of its whole thing. Um, that's yeah. How much of that is like white rock star prices? Yeah, right. <laughs> they're like, oh, it's like uh, the always it's the always sunny in Philadelphia thing where they're like, how much for a crack rock? He's like, uh hundred dollars and they're like oh <laughs> great there you go i guess we'll take two and it's like okay uh yeah but that's i mean first of all that seems like i don't understand how you don't just die right away doing that uh, but that also it seems <laughs> tragically sad there's just no way that you could be a normally function functioning human being because you would have to basically be high all the time that's like wake up and smoke heroin level of oh yeah yeah that's that's definitely a a constant balancing act right yeah well and apparently like he at the time he died so when he died there was no drugs or alcohol in his system at that time so i don't know how long it takes to like flush that shit out but i do think you know he kind of was was starting to come up on the other end of that and at that time was actually he i think he had just put out his fifth album and was working on the sixth one which was ended up being released like posthumously but yeah, let, let's go. Let's listen to the song. I've got a couple other ones here, I think, uh, to kind of dive into. Let's listen to Punch and Judy. They walk in a circle Through all the sidewalk scenes They used to be a part of one time Now everybody just stares and whispers Driving around up and down Division Street, I used to like it here. It just bums me out to remember. Can't you ever treat anyone This this reminded me of Girls a lot as well, Rob. A band that yeah. came up last week. 
No, I, I like this song okay. I mean, it says, at least the track is a little set apart on production. There's a little solo even, or something you could call a solo. I, I, I didn't think the writing was that great, but, you know, it was fine. This had the thing that always annoys me. I've talked about it a couple of times where it's like you force words in that don't necessarily work with the cadence of the melody and stuff. And so I thought that I thought that the writing specifically of the um, of the the lyrics was pretty sloppy. And it's the kind of thing where if you had worked a little bit harder, you could have made them fit in a little less jumbled. And it's not even like sometimes putting in words that don't fit with the cadence helps and it like elevates the line and it like gives you a little bit of a break but this was it was not the case here it didn't elevate it at all i think it really took took me out of the the rhythm of the song yeah i i included this because this was a little bit of a low point for me like i just i felt nothing in fact a lot of what you guys are describing like in general is kind of how i felt specifically about this song i don't know if it was there was a little bit of dissonance or something just wasn't really like landing with me very well. He does have a dissonance. That's like his dissonance. It reminds me of Alice in Chains, not in that it sounds like that, but like they have a vocal harmony that is very unique to them. Right. And they, and they use it constantly. And he does de- like deploy this very specific dissonance. I didn't like dig into what it is. I don't, you know, I don't know what like, what note it's like he's is. picking the wrong vocal note for the chord. Yeah, but he doesn't cons- he doesn't consistently, and as the record goes on, like you you come to just take that note as part of the scale now. You know. Well, it's funny you mentioned Alice in Chains because Tom and I recently did a deep dive on exactly <laughs> what you're talking about, and what they're. Let me guess, Tom was Jerry Cantrell. I don't know which one is which, but uh, <laughs> but what you know what they're doing there is they're using a harmony below the root note right so and and they're kind of turning that note up so it feels like an odd note to be leading the charge in you know because it's not the root note yeah so for for the listeners out there normally a lot of times when you are listening to a pop song or like popular music generally you have the root note which is the lowest voice that you're hearing and then they will put like a third or like a fifth above that the third interval or fifth interval above that and the, so the higher notes are the ones that are not the root. The root is what the main melody is. And so for Alice in Chains, they will take the the root and they will make that the higher note. And then they will put the lower note as the um, as the harmony. And that it gives it an eerie feeling. It's like a, I think we figured out it was like a fourth below is what they're. It's doing a now. fourth yeah. below, which is the same note as a fifth above. So it's it's actually it's not a weird interval, but it's more like that idea of. Your normal idea of how melody should work is what's being thrown into some confusion. Yeah, your ear is trained to hear that. Yeah, to hear yeah, you're, that. yeah, you're trained to follow that lower note, and that lower note is a slightly weirder melody. Yeah, yeah, that also makes sense, too, because if you're singing, in this case, a fourth down, you're going to just get a really interesting inversion of the main melody, right? Yeah. That will exactly. be, quote, perfect still. Uh, but, yeah, your ear's just not, like, it's not looking for that, right? <laughs> like... <laughs> on on dis- we should what's an Allison Chain song where that's prominently on display, Tom? Um, no all excuses was the one that was uh, yeah that was the great. One we're talking we'll, about. we'll add that to the playlist yeah. for your all listening pleasure. Speaking of heavy metal, let's let's take a listen to a song called Angelus.
Someone's always coming around here, trailing some new kill. Says I seen your picture on a hundred dollar bill. What's a game? This was my find from the record on re-listening. It's the second best song next to Between the Bars, in my opinion. It was definitely a standout on my first listen. I like it more and more as I listen to it. I have a clear, clear idea what he's talking about. I think it's about record companies and Los Angeles showbiz culture. Hence the title. It's kind of like Elliot Smith's version of Have a Cigar by Pink Floyd. And yeah, I, I, I like it a lot. I think, I think it's a, a second best track. Yeah, I like this song too. The other song on the record uh, that didn't make the list was Almeida. Uh, Almeida, or um, yeah, Almeida. Um, that sticks out to me. Uh, that was the one that coming into the record I thought was the first track. This was a song I had also forgotten, but it, it did it, it did come back quickly and does just sound sweet and light. This is the one where I was like, I feel like I've heard this song before. And I don't think I actually have, but that is a great feeling to get when you're hearing a song for the first time. It feels familiar. It feels comfortable, but also feels like it's got its own spin. It's a little unique. Um, This song, again, I had a problem with sincerity on this album, and I, I don't know why, but a lot of it didn't strike me as sincere. This song did strike me as sincere, and I thought it was, again, very well executed. Um... But it, like, has the song been in a movie or something? Is that, or am I just? Yeah, the, well, this is this is one of the Goodwill Hunting songs. So there were three, and, and we'll talk about the uh, the third one in a second. Alan, I'm going to shock you. I'm not as intimately familiar with the movie Goodwill Hunting as you are. It seems like this is one of your like you watch it every year on Thanksgiving movies or something. Like I've wa- I've seen it, but I haven't seen it in like 15, 20 years maybe. <laughs> Yeah, like if I'm flipping through on a Saturday, you know, it's either Point Break, Roadhouse, or uh, Goodwill Hunting. It's like, see, it's funny for those who don't know Tom, because my experience with Tom is that every single time a movie comes up, Tom's like, oh yeah, I've watched that in the last three years. Yeah. No matter what it is. With the exception of uh, what Untamed Heart, which uh, apparently Phil and Helen have seen, but I still have not seen that one. You can go ahead and skip that one. The cliff notes we gave you are pretty I mean, good. His baboon heart died. Like, I was picturing his baboon heart giving out like as a result of him catching a puck at a North Stars game, which that would have been epic, but apparently that's not what happened, so psh, I'm out. <laughs> if anybody ever says, like, let's watch a movie about Minnesota or let's watch a movie with Christian Slater, then you want to throw him a curveball. Okay. First of all, let's just be clear. I'm not some, like, Goodwill Hunting a connoisseur aficionado i've seen the movie a few times but you know we're talking about an artist who the the music on this album was featured very prominently on that move in that movie so well the point is if you watched it you did hear this song before i did hear, okay so i had heard this song before but it's been a long time since i've seen this movie so yeah you know maybe it maybe it's a sign of how good of the song it is it, it got stuck in there yeah it's a good song i love the song i think it's great i think um it kind of sh- showcases some of the things he does really well with with y- y- a little understated guitar, and I, I think he gets to gets to bust that out here and there. But um, yeah, great song. 
so let's go to the final song we're we're going to talk about here. This was also a uh, Goodwill Hunting feature, if you will. Um, the song "Say Yes." I'm in love with the world through the eyes of a girl who's still around the morning after. We broke up a month ago, and I grew up. I didn't know I'd be around the morning after. I have to say I particularly liked and it took me a couple of listens to pick up on it. There's that like high organ drone at the very beginning of the song. It's like super light in the background. It's just a very high like and it kind of fades out when the music comes in. I thought that was really cool. I thought that was super tasteful. But then it comes in and it's that same kind of problem where like he doesn't hit the notes very well on like the first couple of lines of the song. He actually does pretty well after that, but the first couple of lines, it, he didn't really hit them that well. And again, I, I have very little uh, forgiveness for somebody who's not hitting the whisper notes. And then again, the thing that prevented me from liking it, I know I'm, I know I'm particular about some, some things. I'm sure you guys are shocked to hear that, but I don't like rhyming girl and world. I feel like that happens all the time, and it just seems so damn lazy to me. Like, girl in world, all the time. Like, stop it. Just come up with a better fucking line. <laughs> just pointing it out. I don't like that. Oh, man, that's, yeah, that's pretty specific. <laughs> it's just, it's so overdone. I feel like it, everybody is like, oh, girl in world, slant ride. I feel like we're all going to go back to our, our lyric sheets from our own songs and just do a quick scan <laughs> here after this. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I definitely, I definitely saw just went, hmm, note to self. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you got Swirl, you got Pearl. I mean, there's definitely some other some other options there. I, I like the song. I thought it was a very a nice way to end the album. I think this was the last song on the album. Yeah, yeah this is the last track. Yeah, another Goodwill Hunting song. Um, I thought this was like the least kind of complicated of all the songs and not that they're all super complex. This isn't like prog rock or anything, but this, you know, this melody was the, it reminded me of the 1960s. It has that kind of lilting bounciness to it that didn't, none of his other melodies had that quality to them. So it reminded me a little bit of stuff like the zombies or the Beatles or Bell and Sebastian, as we've previously mentioned, not a sixties man, but definitely taking cues from the 60s. Yeah. This, this one definitely has a, like I, I feel like I, I could see like an indie band covering this. Like I, I sense how this could, you know, be rearranged for a sort of traditional band. And, uh, and, and Rob, I also do think Pictures of Me has that similar sort of like sixties poppiness. Um, it's not in the melody in quite the same way. I do agree the melody pays off pretty pretty well here. One thing we just haven't mentioned yet that I, I thought was a cool little tidbit diving around wikipedia the two other he self-produced this to a certain extent but worked with two other guys one guy rob schnaff is then went on to produce the dr dog record shame shame what yeah i thought thought that was kind of interesting and the other guy tom rothrock worked on beck's early stuff his claim to fame was that he produced loser Hmm. that's that's decent claim that's pretty good claim to fame 
You know, I, I feel like I want to, I want to point out that like I I started off talking about things that I felt were bad about this song. Um, I actually do like this song. I don't think it's a bad song. This is one of my more favorite songs on the album. Um, I particularly like the vocal counter melody over the chorus. The counter melodies in general are really strong. Like in general, I think it's sort of his strong yeah. suit, the way he plays those, the, the, you know, the bass lines on the guitar against his He does melody. that like there's a vocal mel- main melody and then he does a counter melody that he also... so. You know, he's got the double constantly on his main vocals. Two versions of him singing the exact same thing. Um, but he then has a counter melody vocal that is doubled, but it's an octave. So one's lower, one's higher, and it's kind of going up uh, against the melody. That worked really well. I thought that that was quite nice. Yeah, at the end of the song, it does some really cool stuff, for sure. Specifically that effect of having the octave doubled for a background, I don't think had shown up in many other places on the album, or at least hadn't been as effectively used. I think that most of the time he's like straight doubling, just singing the exact same thing to give it a little bit more beefiness. Um, but this, it felt a little bit more, again, felt like an effect um, uh, without feeling affected. <laughs> yeah. Or it felt affected without feeling like an effect. You know, it doesn't seem like, you know, it's like a plugin that you put on it to make it sound that way. So I thought that was, I thought that was well done. And again, if I'm, if I'm picking, uh, songs in this album. This is this is in my top five on the album, which I guess is not saying much because yeah. that's like, no. I I, <laughs> I agree with that. It's up there. Yeah. Well, you, you know, another '60s and the vocals kind of remind me of is Paul Simon, right? And I think he I think he earned some early comparisons to Simon and Garfunkel, or he, but it reminds me a little more of Paul Simon's early solo stuff. That first like that song Duncan, or you know, it's the album with Mother and Child reunion on it. And, you know, that, that kind of quiet vocal doubled combined with acoustic guitar, interesting acoustic guitar stuff going on. To me, that's a valid comparison. So I think we, we've gotten a pretty good, like, representative sample uh, of this album. Um, you know, Elliot Smith, you were nominated for an Oscar. You performed at the Academy Awards. But will you get your ultimate claim to fame you are an Oscar and get our stamp of approval you're beloved by musicians you're a Portland legend um, let's go around the horn and see if you get the ultimate stamp of approval um, Rob do you need to listen to this album before you die well he didn't win an Oscar just to be clear but he was nominated oh he did I, say, I thought no, I said I was he was referring nominated. to the peanut gallery you mentioned that while you were talking um, no he didn't win but he did perform there so good for him I think I was conflicted about this, even coming into the conversation. I like the record just fine. So I'm going to go yes. I think it's worth listening to. And file it under, how do I understand modern music? How do I understand these different eras of music? How do I understand and draw these, these lines and the constellations that connect these artists that, that go throughout the decades? I think this is an important piece of the puzzle. I think it's the most representative piece of his work. And I think... It kicks off a subgenre, let's say, and allows you to better understand all those other bands that we have mentioned, the kind of precious vocal indie rock, which is still popular today to some extent. And I don't, I'm not saying he 100% invented it, but I certainly think he helped popularize it. And for that, I think he's a valid person to go and add to the, your canon of music. I am very much like Rob conflicted and uh once again i'm going to start my sentence not knowing where i'm going to end it um i i know that um i've changed my criteria 
for judging these albums a couple of times. I do think that that is a, a valid approach still. I understand it might be frustrating to some uh, listeners and also to some participants on this call, I am sure. <laughs> um, so you think the thing you're doing is valid? Is that what you're trying to say? Uh, yeah. Listen, I think a lot of the things I do are completely <laughs> invalid, by the way. Trust me, I'm not one of those people who uh, I look at the way I live my life and I, I can see a lot of room for improvement. But either way, the thing that makes me tip in the direction of saying yes is that I think goodwill hunting stands aside. Uh, you're probably not going to have heard this stuff unless you seek it out and listen to it in an album form. It's not like you're just going to be walking by popular radio and hear it. Same reason why like, you know, like Madonna, um, uh, it's like, yeah, you're going to have heard express yourself. You're going to have heard, um, uh, like a prayer. So you don't need to seek out the rest of the album because you're not going to find anything else on that. I do think that this album, it's not the kind of thing that you're going to get if you're not going to seek it out. So, yeah, I'll say yes. Go ahead. Listen to the album. Say yes. <laughs> oh, that's good. So, so this was the first time I had to reference my previous votes because there was one specific album, Devendra Bonhart's whatever, uh, that I was like, I can't give this a no. And then also given Defender Bonhart a yes, because that would be... So I have to give this a no because I just couldn't... I couldn't sort of get back into the album. There was definitely a time when I listened to this album a bunch. It was in my car. I remember listening to it many times on the way to work. There's some great songs on this record. I, I You know, we talked about some of them. I think Say Yes is great. Um, I think Between the Bars is great. I really like Almeida. Um, but I just couldn't get into the record. Uh, and, and to that end, I think it's more like background music. It's more like furniture music. And that's sort of what I said was wrong with Devendra Bonhart's record. Like when I sat down and tried to listen to it, I sort of didn't, I couldn't, uh, for lack of a better way to put it. So I would say no, you don't have to listen to it before you die. Uh, although it's, it's, it's a nice record. I don't, I don't, I don't, I didn't dislike the record. It's it's a pretty easy yes for me if that hasn't been clear. I should you know again be very clear. This is not a genre of music that I particularly like. I'm not a fan of the one guy with a guitar. It's it's just not. It, it's always rubbed me the wrong way. And I know there's other instrumentation, so it's not just that. But I I think he's doing something so unique. And I'll, I kind of keep going back to this idea of like the musician's musician, where when I listen to it, me personally, I hear somebody who is a clear kind of cut above kind of your average musician who, who's out there, you know, pumping out songs. Like to me, there's a lot of depth. There's a lot of complexity. His voice is a little grating. It's a little annoying, but I think you can say that about a lot of bands. I mean, if you listen to neutral milk hotel for more than 30 seconds and you're not sick of that voice, then I don't know what to tell you, but I like his voice. <laughs> you would. Yeah, I would. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think it's, I think it's a great album. I think this is probably the, the, he became much more popular after this, but I think this probably represents like the best of his material. And I do feel that there would be a hole in my musical tapestry if this weren't in it. So you've earned our stamp of approval. Well done, sir. Listeners, what do you think? If you uh, agree, disagree, hit us up. 1001 album complaints at gmail.com. Let us know if you think we got it right, got it wrong, or if you just want to hurl uh, invective at us, that's fine as well. Um, we, we welcome contributions from anyone. 
with that said, let's uh, look forward to next week and uh, see what the Albinator has in store for us. All right. I think the Albinator is going to spit out something pretty good for us. Uh, you know, maybe something that's going to get us past this morose and uh, down-tempo-ness that we've had before. So let's crank that wheel. Let's see what we got. Next week, we will be listening to... Ooh. Elvis Costello, Armed Forces. I think I have that record, so I think that's a, ready to go. I have, yeah, I think I have this on vinyl too. Only thing I can uh, say off the top of my head is that uh, this is the album where quite possibly the whitest man in all of history drops the N-word and somehow has not gotten canceled for it at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, if that's not an excuse... <laughs> cliffhanger to listen to the record i don't know what is uh, uh, tom i listened to bob dylan's uh desire the other day it definitely happens on does it really well. come on people be better in both cases the biggest hit from the record <laughs> oh no you're talking about on hurricane that yeah. at least he's putting himself yeah. in the character of a racist for that line. I think Elvis Costello just drops the N word because he likes the he likes the rhyme. <laughs> no, he's talking. No, no, no. Ah, hold okay. on a second. We'll get into I, it next yeah, week. But he's yeah. ta- he's talking about being recruited for the army and and basically mm-hmm. the yeah. idea that the government's trying to sell poor white people because they don't care if you get killed. Yes, I understand. Yeah, yeah, I get the the context. There's other ways you could have said that. Oh, I, I'm not disagreeing yeah. with that, but just don't don't act like it was just dropped in from. Oh, zero it's, yeah, reason. it's not like he was just like, huh? What rhymes with bigger? I wonder. <laughs> you know, he's a provocateur. He's a provocateur for sure. So yeah. we'll get into it. I imagine. Stay tuned for our exploration of the military industrial complex next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're certainly looking forward to that one. And with that, I'm Alan. I'm Rob. I'm Tom. And I'm Phil. Boosh. Say yes.